0: All right, it's good to see you all this morning. I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. As you go there, um, I'm going to pray one more time before we go into God's Word. Uh, I was away last week. Appreciate Pastor Joe filling in and preaching God's Word. And uh, we're continuing our, our series in the parables this morning and called Tales of the Kingdom. And so. Today, we're going over to the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be in Luke for a little while, looking at uh, the parables of Jesus here in this Gospel. Let's pray. Father, again, we bow before you, and we thank you for what you have done through Christ. Pray that if there's someone here that has never been justified, never been made right with you, if it is not well with their soul, that it will be well today, and, and because they will come to Christ, and they will call out for mercy, and he will save Thank you that we are not saved by any work of our own. There's not a single good deed, not a single religious ritual, not a single ounce of morality that we could come to you with that could cause you to save us. We are saved by your grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, for your glory alone. And the truth is, is that without you, there would be no salvation. I pray that you would forgive me that you would cleanse my heart and that you would fill me with the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel. I am not worthy. I deserve hell. But because of your grace, because of your mercy, I pray that you will use the word this morning to move in our hearts and to do your work. I love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message today is Only Sinners Justified. Only Sinners justified. Stand with me for the reading of God's Word, and we're going to be looking there at Luke and uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. The Bible says, He also told the parable, this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated what is the most important question one can ask? It's been said that there are no stupid questions except those que- the question that goes unasked. But if we were to say, what is the most important question one would ask, I would say to simply cut right to it, it would be this. How can a person be made right with God? That's a biblical question because it harkens back to the book of Job 25 where Bildad uh, is giving his counsel to Job, and he does rightly observe that that is the most important question that we could ask. That question comes to Jesus in the Gospels in various ways. You, you'll remember the rich young ruler will come to him and say, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You'll have the, uh, the lawyer that will come to Jesus and will ask the question um, how he can have eternal life. What must he do? What is necessary that one might inherit eternal life? eternal life. And so it all goes right back to that central question, how how can a person be right with God? And that is the most important question that you or I could entertain. I don't care how old you are, I don't care who you are, that is still the most important question that you could ask. And here's the thing, hands down, all people answer that question incorrectly. You know why? The reason why most people answer and I would say all people, really, answer that question incorrectly is because they think that you must be good in order to be right with God, that you must behave. You must be spiritual or religious or moral. And the reality is, is that that message of be good, behave rightly, and then God will accept you, it is at the heart of all world religions. I would also say it's at the heart of natural philosophy. Truly, the idea that we got to be good to get to heaven, it is the instinct of every person's nature. It's the notion of self-righteous goodness. Even atheists believe this. Even atheists believe that there's a code that they have to lift up to. And if they live up to that code, then they'll find some, some portion of happiness in life, and people that are skeptics would even have to, will probably even admit that if there is a God, then that's what he would expect, is that we be good. And the other reality is, is that most people consider themselves to be good, at least good enough not to go to hell. I mean, God wouldn't send me to hell. He wouldn't send anybody to hell, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the, the predominant uh, thought in most people's mind when it comes to that reality. Albert Moeller makes this, uh, this observation. He observes that the majority of people in our culture, and even in our church cultures really, prescribe to a form of moralism, a salvation that comes by behaving, and then they convince themselves that they can trust in their behavior. I think that's also dangerous even for Christians, because we Christians have a tendency to say, yes, it's all the gospel for me to get saved, but it's all my behavior to stay saved. And that's bad theology. It's the gospel all the way through. And so Jesus here is addressing that self-righteous tendency. Jesus taught this parable to level all forms of moralism and to destroy self-righteous religion. And there's no one that represented self-righteous religion more uh, better than the Pharisees. And so what Jesus does here is he exposes the danger of self-righteousness. Look at the text, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so it's interesting because verse 9 actually does something that we haven't seen really in the parables. The, the text actually tells us why Jesus tells this. And it's interesting because he it, it says he told this parable to some. It doesn't even specify Pharisees. It just says to some. And, 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 and that, or it could be translated to everyone or to anyone who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So don't make the mistake of just you know, signing this off to the Pharisees. No, no, no. This is to everyone. Everyone. This is to anyone, this is to any person who gives even an inkling and just just even gives the slightest credit to themselves that they are righteous because of what they do or because of who they are or any other reason. And so it says, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so Pharisees, obviously representing the, the Jewish religion that, uh, that, Jesus, that opposed Jesus, they considered themselves good and they were marked by self-righteousness. Now notice Jesus here, in the, in the, that the text in the introduction of the parable gives us two marks of self-righteousness. So you need to, you need to write these down. Here are two marks of self-righteousness. They trust in self with confidence. You know what the text says? It says, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They were looking inward and they were saying, wow, look at me. They possess a delusional and a damning self-confidence in their morality and their religious performance. I am a moral person. I am a good neighbor. I try to keep the Ten Commandments, right? I go to church. I do these spiritual things. And so a mark of self-righteousness is a trust in self with confidence. But notice the second thing. They treat others with contempt. Two marks, right? The first one is a disposition toward self. The second is an attitude towards others. The self-righteous person has contempt towards others. In fact, the the word used is contempt. It says that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. What that means is is that the self-righteous person treats others as lower, as inferior, as worthless. Literally, is what the word contempt means. It views others as worthless. It is an attitude of disdain, of hatred towards others who are considered spiritually inferior. Jesus gives this parable to destroy these marks of self-righteousness. So here's the key idea of the parable. God justifies guilty sinners... Who look to Christ and not to themselves for salvation. That's the thrust of the whole parable. I mean, we could just stop with God justifies guilty sinners. That That is the key thought, kingdom truth to this parable. And by the word justified, I just what what that means is that God makes sinners Right with him, who the sinners who look to Christ, he makes sinners who look to Christ right with him and not to themselves for salvation. And so we're going to see this key kingdom truth unfold in three ways. First, we're going to see the profile of these two men. Then we're going to look at the prayers by these two men. And then we're going to look at the pronouncement to these men. So we're going to look at the profile first. We're going to look at the prayer second, and then we're going to look at the pronouncement last. Let's look at the first thing. The first thing you see is is the profile of the men. Look at verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now here's another thing that's very different about this parable, is that Jesus here, it's not really hypothetical, right? I, I mean, and what I mean by that is, is that you ever watch a TV show that it says, based on real events, I think you could kind of put that as the underscore this parable with that. This is based on real events. Everybody standing here listening to this can picture the Pharisee because they probably see the Pharisees, and they can look around and they can see other people like tax collectors. And so two men went up to the temple and prayed, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. So let's just look at the profile of the two men. One, you see a a self-righteous Pharisee. That's the first person who's introduced to us. Now, Pharisees were the predominant religious leaders of their day, right? It's kind of like if you see religious people today, sometimes you'll see them depending on the denomination. Uh, I don't wear, I mean, we don't have like clothing requirements here. I mean, we try to look business casual, but we don't have like, I'm not going to wear a flip back collar or anything like that. I'm not going to wear a big hat. I might just to entertain you, but anyway, but Pharisees would have been very noticeable because of the way they dressed. They were the predominant leaders. And they were observable in Jerusalem. You knew who they were. It would have been a normal thing. And anywhere Jesus was, you would always find a Pharisee because they didn't like Jesus at all. And so it would have been a normal thing to see a Pharisee go up to the temple mount and to worship in prayer. Now we're talking about Jerusalem and the, the very peak of the, uh, in Jerusalem, the mountain in Jerusalem. You would have the temple and that's where they would gather. The Jews would go. That's where they would worship. That's where sacrifices were offered. And so to see a Pharisee going up to the temple, that would be normal. That's expected. That's what righteous, devout, good Pharisees do. And Pharisees love to be heard. Jesus talks about that, doesn't he, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5 when he tells the disciples, well, don't pray like the Pharisees because they love to pray and they like to pray really long prayers and they love everybody to hear them so that they they can hear how theological they are, how knowledgeable they are, and how righteous they are. And so they love to be heard. They love to be seen for their religious duties. They wanted people to view them as holy men as religiously devout. And and though they were committed to the scriptures, and so I don't want to ignore the fact that they were committed to the scriptures, and they sought to obey God. And there were sincere Pharisees. Nicodemus would be one of them. Joseph of Arimathea would have been another one of them. But as a whole, while they did seek the scriptures and seek to obey God, they were fundamentally flawed. And here's why. Because what verse 9 says, they truly trusted in their own righteousness. They trusted in their performance for salvation. They trusted in their religious heritage to make them spiritually acceptable. We are the sons of Abraham, and therefore we're in. And so as a result, they hated Jesus and they did oppose him. And they put, because they put such an obsessive focus toward obeying the law, they were so obsessed with obeying the law of God that they even added, made additions to the law. And then they became obsessed with keeping their additions to the law. And they did so to the neglect of their inward soul. They focus so heavily on their outward external appearance and performance that Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 tells the Pharisees that they are nothing more than whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, but absolutely corrupt and decaying on the inside. In fact, if you back up two chapters from Luke 18, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. He says, "You are those who justify yourselves before men. You want everybody to think that you are right with God because you look it, you act it, you talk it, but you, God knows your heart." And how many of us have heard people say, "Well, the Lord knows my heart." That's what the Pharisees thought. And they thought that was a good thing. And Jesus says, uh, not a good thing. Because our hearts are decaying. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet says that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? So, so, so the idea that we can appeal to our, to our inward state is ludicrous. It, it, it's false religion to do that. And so... Here you have this Pharisee, goes to the temple, like good Pharisees do, and he was going to pray either at 9 a.m. in the morning or 3 p.m. in the afternoon, because those were the two designated times to pray, and the Pharisee would have been guaranteed to get his audience. So no one would be surprised by the Pharisee. The surprise comes with the sinful tax collector. Isn't that what it says? The second one that we're introduced to is the tax collector. He makes his way to the temple as well. And if you're the audience, if you're listening to this, you would have been shocked. Tax collectors were exceptionally hated by the Jews. I'm talking about not just the Jewish leaders, by the people. They were considered traitors and thieves because it, because what they did was is that they were given franchise they would they would have a franchise and, and in that franchise they would whatever taxes they collected would pay for their business but anything they collected over over what was what was due in taxes they kept it for themselves and so they were not only partnering with Rome in the opposition of Israel they were greedy they were greedy and they were greedy businessmen preying upon others In fact, whenever you see the word tax collector mentioned, not every time, but many times in the Gospels, the tax collectors are listed with who? Prostitutes and drunkards. Tax collectors were viewed as the lowest of the low. They were considered morally debased and ethically dishonest and utterly unredeemable. Did you hear that? That was the attitude towards the tax collector. That they were morally debased, ethically dishonest, and utterly unredeemable. And they had no place in the temple. No place in the temple. A sanctuary of holiness. In fact, if you went outside of Jerusalem, tax collectors were banned from the synagogues. They weren't even allowed to go into the synagogues to hear the word taught. And so, while they would have been permitted to access the outer court of the temple, they were not welcome there. And it would have been shocking to see a tax collector making his way there. So, you get the contrast? See what Jesus is doing? See what he's setting up? He's setting up this two extremes the most religious you could imagine and the most immoral you could imagine. And you know what the question is? Which one of them get to go to heaven? Which one of them get to go to heaven? That's what he's setting up. One person is considered deeply devout and simply, a supremely spiritual. The other is a wretch, an outcast, a criminal. Both make their way to the temple. Which one goes home right with God? And so that leads us to this. The profile of these two men leads us to this kingdom question. Are you a Pharisee or are you a tax collector? Are you a Pharisee? Or text, Well, I'll just be honest, I think I'm both. I think I'm both. But the reality is, we're all sinners in need for the mercy of God. And this profile <laughs> forces that question upon us. But what it does is it leads to us a second point, and that is the prayer by the men. So we have the profile of the men, and we have the prayer by the men. Verse 11, look what the text says. The Pharisee. So the first prayer that we encounter is in verse 11, and it is the prayer of the Pharisee. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like, underline this this word, this tax collector. The Pharisee has locked his eye on that tax collector, and he not only wants everyone in that room to hear him, He wants that tax tax collector to know he's looking at him, and he wants that man to hear him. And so he says in verse 12, he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, I want you to notice here before we look at the prayer how he stands. Do you see it? It says the Pharisee standing by himself prayed (laughs) thus. And so... He stands. What he does is is he isolates himself. He's standing in a place to be seen. We know that because we see that in the other Gospels. The Pharisees always positioned themselves either, in some sense, that he stood alone. If not alone, he was above everybody. They could see him. He could see everyone else. And the reason that the text emphasizes standing by himself, it's not that standing and praying is wrong. That's how the Jews prayed. But what Jesus is emphasizing is he is isolating himself to be seen. He is putting himself in a position of self-assurance and self-promotion. See it? He wants to be able to see the other worshipers whom he considers to be unworthy. And then he prays. Now I want to say this about his prayer. It should be noted that the ESV, which we just read, it says standing by himself. However, grammatically, other translations read that he stood and he was praying these things to himself. He wasn't praying to himself like he was just praying silently. Because Pharisees didn't pray silently, did they? We know that they didn't pray silently. He prayed to himself. Jesus is actually giving you a commentary here. Matthew Henry, the Puritan, picks up on this and he says, The man went to pray, but forgot his errand. The Pharisee went to pray, but he forgot his errand because what he does is no prayer. It is an announcement. It is an announcement to God before others of his own self assessment. He is giving his own acceptance speech before God. Right? Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad. I know all of you are shocked that I'm here, you're, but you're certainly not surprised, given how holy I am. <laughs> you know how you see this? You know how I know it's his, his self, his acceptance speech. Circle the four eyes. Four eyes there. I thank you that I am not like. I fast twice a week. I give. What an acceptance speech! I mean, he must have really memorized this. But you know what's missing? There's no confession of sin. There is no plea for forgiveness. There is no fear before a holy God. There is not even a recognition of the attributes of God. None of that. In fact, he mentions God and then monologues about himself. He mentions God, but then he monologues about himself. The Pharisee is impressed. Here's his resume. You ready? His resume includes what he avoids and what he achieves. What he avoids and what he achieves. And he he believes God should be impressed with this. He demonstrates no awareness of God's grace or his need for it. And not once does he ever even look at God and say, forgive me, forgive me, give me mercy. We've seen that in our own culture, people of notoriety and popularity, who will reference the name of God, even talk about their Christian faith, but admit no need for their forgiveness of their sin. And so here he does. Here he, here he goes. And, and, and so what you see in terms of this assessment, two things. Look at what he says. He compares himself in superiority See what it, he he says, God, I thank you that I am not like these others. And he looks around, he looks around, uh, he looks at all those that have come to worship and he considers this distinction. And what what he says is, I thank you that I am not like other men. But then what he does is, is he mentions other men, extortioners, unjust people, adulterers, Or even, and and see how he zeroes in on the tax collector? Even like this tax collector. I mean, you got adulterers, you've got extortioners, you've got unjust people, but you've got these. And he saves the best for last because the Jews hated the tax collectors more than any of the others. He sees his spiritual condition as secure and superior compared to these others. And what's interesting is, is that he considers this distinction. He's not saying, God, thank you for saving me and transforming me. What he's saying is, is that I'm not like them. And you know why I'm not like them? Because I have really performed well. See the, you see the tone in it? The tone is not, he, he, this, is, this is him saying, I'm not like them because I perform and I do better than them. The comparison is absolutely delusional. The Pharisee is indicating that God should be thanking him compared to the others so inferior. It's almost as if he thinks God should get up and give him a round of applause for being there and for announcing his wonderful resume. And again, what is missing? Here's the key thing that's missing. No awareness of his inerrant sin. There is no awareness of his inerrant sin, even if he outwardly checked all the boxes, even if he never committed adultery, even if he never killed a man, even if he never did stole anything, he's still a sinner in his nature. Isn't that what Jesus was pointing out in the Sermon on the Mount? When he pointed out, he says, you do well to say that you have never committed adultery, but if you have lusted in your heart, then you have sinned. You do well to say that I have never murdered, but if you have hated your brother in your heart, then you're guilty of murder. The man has no awareness of his inward corruption, of his complete depravity. He is deceived by his moral superiority. Let me ask you a question. Who do you compare yourself to? Who do you compare yourself to? Do you look out in society and see people that you consider to be so degenerate that you consider yourself just slightly above them? Brothers and sisters, if we're Christians today, we must never think that we are superior to others, that we are morally upright, or that we are acceptable before God because of anything in us or anything about us. We are all sinful. We are all corrupt. We are all self righteous. I'll even be easy on the Pharisees. I want to pick up a stone and throw it at the Pharisees, but the reality is, I'm a Pharisee too. In our sinful condition before God, we are no different than the meth addict, the sexually deviant, or the serial killer. And if that offends, it doesn't matter because it's the truth. You know why we have to get there? Because you will never understand the greatness of the mercy of God until you understand the depths of your sin. And those depths are in the wellspring of our hearts. And so he then not only compares, but he credits himself. He credits himself with spirituality. He moves from morality to merit. What he achieves? I fast twice a week. Now, fasting is to be commended. No one would condemn fasting. Jesus taught that we should fast. But the law required one public day of fasting a year, and that was Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Any other fasts were voluntary. But what the Pharisees had done is they had instituted additional days for fasting so that they could fast on those days and then tell everybody what amazing fasters they are. (laughs) You you fast twice a week? You, You fast once a week? I fast twice a week, mic drop. You pray twice a day? I pray morning, noon, and night. And then I pray the whole time I'm driving anywhere, I'm just talking to God. Yeah, yeah, there you go, right? And when it came to tithing, they tithed on everything. Isn't that what he says? Look at the text. I mean, he he says, he says, in in, in the verse he says, I give tithes of all that I get. That birthday card that I got with $10 in it, I dropped 10 cents in the offering plate, and I did it when it was real quiet so it would echo all throughout the building. (laughs) That's the Pharisee. That's the Pharisee. And they wanted you to know. But you know the reality is, isn't that exhausting? Their, their righteousness was a do more righteousness. Do more than, even do more than God requires. And he will be impressed with my extra credit. I'll never forget that. The kids that will come up to you and they'll be like, Mr. Ritter, can I get extra credit? And I would like, yeah, uh, well, Wait a minute. And I'd look at the grade book and I'd be like, you got like a 98% A plus. Like, what do you need? Like, because I want a 105%. <laughs> and I'd be like, well, the 5 percent's not going to count. <laughs> that's, that's the mindset here, right? You know, it's easy to observe the self-righteousness of the Pharisee. But Albert Moeller notes that there is a little Pharisee inside of all of us always tempting us to compare ourselves or to credit ourselves. You're okay. You're not as bad as those people. You're okay. Look at all the things that you do. Look how much you serve. Look how much you give. Look how much you do. And then we boast of the sins that we avoid. We brag about the disciplines that we follow. Wanting others to know, this is how much I pray. This is much how much I read the Bible. This is how much we love the Lord. Are, all, are any of these things wrong? No. But they are overtly wrong if you're trying to earn righteousness. If you think you're going to go to heaven because of any of that, you're going to go to hell. Isaiah 64, but we are all an unclean thing and all our Righteousness says Are like filthy rags So we got the, we got the Pharisee right Let's look at a complete opposite The tax collector So Jesus then tells us the prayer of the tax collector And look at verse 13 But the tax collector Standing afar off Would not even lift up his eyes to heaven I don't even think he sees the Pharisee The Pharisee sees him. He doesn't see the Pharisee. I don't think he sees anybody but himself. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So notice again the positioning. Jesus' description is clear. He stands afar off. He doesn't stand above. He doesn't stand alone. He stands away. You know why he stands away? Because he does not see himself as worthy like the Pharisee. He is standing on the outskirts of the temple, on the outskirts of the, of the outer court. And he stands here because he sees himself as unworthy to approach God. You know why? Because somewhere, somehow, some way, he has come to the realization of his sin, of his sinfulness, of his wretchedness. And it is from that lonely place, that lowly place, His posture shows that he is ashamed of his sin. He is aware of his guilt. And he knows he is alienated from God. That's what his posture shows. And it is from there that he prays. And he offers notice in his prayer, do you see it? In his prayer, he offers no excuses, he offers no explanations, he offers no comparisons. And he offers no resume. And he has no self-pity. He does not go, oh, woe is me. I'm a victim of my circumstances. I'm a victim of the system. I'm a victim of, no, no. He does not offer anything except his own guilt. And he demonstrates that he's remorseful and repentant in three ways. Look at it. First, he bowed his head. We've already addressed that. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He would not even gaze upon the king high upon his throne because he understood that he was unworthy to even look upon such a holy and righteous God. Tells you something about worship, doesn't it? Worship is not to be cavalier. It is not to be presumptuous. It is not about us. We do not approach God in flippancy or foolishness. We approach God in humility, understanding that we are not even worthy to utter his name, let alone stand in his presence. And so he bows his head. And then the text says he beat his chest. Beating your chest would be a universal gesture of sorrow and remorse. The tense of the verb indicates continuous action. He just continued to beat his chest. Isn't it interesting? The chest, the chamber of the heart. What's that telling you? The chamber of the heart. It's a recognition that the guilt is not just on his hands. The guilt is in his soul. And it indicates that he's sorrowful. He's not just sorry. Sorry. He's not just sorry that he cheated his, his fellow countrymen. He's not just sorry that he did something wrong. He is sorrowful over his sinfulness. He knows that his problem is not just simply what he does, it's what he is. Isn't that what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7? For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So, you can't just create a checklist and say, okay, I didn't murder, didn't commit theft, didn't commit sexual immorality, didn't covet. You can't, because the problem's the heart. You need a heart transplant. You need a transformation. You need a new nature. You need to be born again. You need to become a new person. And and, and so he recognizes that it, it is a heart issue. And then what does he do? Thirdly, he begs for mercy. He lifts his voice. Compare it to the Pharisee. A short, simple prayer that flowed from a sincere heart. God, be merciful to me. A sinner. I want you to, what I want you to get here is, is that the Greek word for mercy does not provoke us to just simply think of like a, a, like, a like a prisoner standing before a king, grabbing the king's cloak and saying, oh please, oh please, don't punish me. No, no, no. The Greek word is helaskatai, which is the word helaskatos, which is the word we get for propitiation. What the man is saying is God God do whatever it's necessary to atone for my sin. He is pleading for atonement. In other words, I'm not suggesting that he understands sacrifice. He understand. he understand, he, he did know the sacrificial system. I mean he's a Jew. I'm not suggesting he, he understood the full the full spectrum of substitutionary death of a lamb or or an animal, but what I am suggesting is he understood that mercy can only come if justice is upheld. He knows he cannot atone for his sin, and he seeks God to do whatever is necessary to satisfy the law's requirement for his sin. He's admitting, I can do nothing, but whatever you can do, do it and show me mercy. Forgive me, pardon me, and receive me. And, and so, so the, the cry for mercy is a cry for God to do whatever is necessary in order to receive him, to forgive him, and to pardon him. But here's another observation. When it says, God be merciful to me, a sinner, actually in the Greek, the article is there. So you know how this actually reads? It should read in English, and this is probably in your footnotes at the bottom of your Bible. It says, God be merciful to me, The sinner. Not just a sinner, the sinner. See, see what it does. He's not comparing. He's not comparing himself. He's not saying. He's not saying. It's just something a sinner who's done some bad things. But what he's saying is, is he's saying the sinner, where the Pharisee sees everyone else in the crowd, the tax collector can only see himself, and he has one thing to say about himself. One thing. How many things did that Pharisee say about himself? The tax collector only has one thing to say about himself I am the sinner. I am the worst. I am the vilest. I am the guilty. There is no one worse than me. And there is no one who needs mercy more than me. And I cannot save myself. All of that is is implied in his statement. So let me ask you this question Do you see yourself as the sinner? No, not a sinner, not just somebody who's done something bad, but in your heart, do you recognize, I don't care if you're a child, I don't care if you're a teenager, I don't care if you're an adult, this is essential. Do you see yourself as a sin-loving, God-hating, hell-deserving sinner? And again, I go back to what I said a moment ago, only then will you truly see, only then can a person be really truly repentant and trust Christ for salvation is when they see themselves in the condition that the Bible truly presents us to be in. The gospel is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's, a, that's, that's an unbiblical uh, platitude is what that is. The gospel is you're a guilty sinner before a holy God and you need a sin-conquering, hell-defeating Savior and he has come and his name is Jesus. And the good news is that you can be saved from your sins. You can be forgiven. You can be pardoned. You can be made right with God, not on any work you have done, but on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. But you can't see the goodness of that gospel until you see the greatness of your sin. And so, do you see yourself as the sinner? I know when I got saved as a child, I wouldn't have articulated all of this in the way that I've preached it to you in my mid-40s. But I do remember that when I became a Christian, I understood somewhere at the age of 10 that I was sinful and that I deserved to go to hell. And I was afraid. I was rightly afraid of a holy God. And when I heard of Jesus, God opened my heart to trust him and him alone for salvation. And so, do you trust? Do you see yourself as the sinner? Do you look to God for mercy at the cross? Do you look for, to God? That's what this tax collector, he's looking to God for mercy. You don't need a pass on your sin. You need a provision. You need a sacrifice. You need a substitute. And that is what's happened at the cross When Jesus died on that cross, hear me, when he died on that cross, he died for sinners. And on that cross, God poured out all of his holy justice and wrath on Christ. And because Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God and died in our place at the cross, it doesn't matter what sin you've committed, it doesn't matter how terrible you may feel yourself to be, At the cross, you can receive mercy and grace if you simply will look to Christ for atonement and salvation. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So the kingdom question that we were brought to is this. What is your confession about yourself before God? Is it, I am the sinner? I'm not just a sinner who, you know, did a few bad things. No, I am the sinner. I don't care about anybody else. I'm not worried about anybody else. I see myself as the sinner, the chief of sinners, Paul said to Timothy. And I need mercy that can only come from the cross. That leads us to a third and final thing. So we've looked at the profile of these two men. I think we got that. We now looked at the prayer by these two men. And in that prayer, we've seen the tax collector, we've seen the publican, but now we need a verdict, don't we? I mean, you can feel the anticipation in the audience. So look at this. I tell you, Jesus says, and that word, I tell you, is emphasis. He intends to shock. This is not the outcome people would have thought. That this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Do you see this? The sinner was justified and not condemned. That's what you see there. The sinner was was justified and not condemned. The conclusion is astonishing. I am almost certain that there would have been gasps in the audience. I mean, it's like the younger brother in the tale of the prodigal son. He's mad because, the, because his, his older brother has come back and repent, or the older brother is mad because the younger brother has come back and the father is celebrating his repentance. The crowd is upset. What? Who went home justified? The tax collector. Yeah, the worst, the lowest, most debased sinner. He went home fully forgiven of all his sin and right with God. That that would have been astonishing. And the message is simple. Why? Because God justifies sinners. Sinners cannot justify themselves. And there are three things here to tie into the doctrine of justification. Three things. One, he was declared justified. And now what the text says, I tell you, he went home justified. He went home justified. Justification is a declaration, an act of God alone. Without any contribution of human works, you cannot trust even a little bit of your righteousness for salvation. If you are to be saved, you must be saved on the work of Christ and the work of Christ alone, not Jesus and your baptism and your, Lord and your participation in communion and your church membership and your good works and your whatever. It is Christ and Christ alone. And Jesus, in this statement, drives a nail through self-righteous religion. I tell you, that's authoritative. I am telling you that the way a man is justified is by the mercy of God, not the merit within. The Son of God defines the terms of salvation, not us. And Jesus says, this man went home justified. Declared righteous and forgiven. Now, pay attention. Hold on with me here. There's a pronouncement on that Pharisee. Did you see it? Jesus says, rather than the other. He didn't just ignore the Pharisee. He condemned the Pharisee. The religious person goes to hell. The religious person, trusting in his own righteousness, will not enter the kingdom of God. A person is in a dangerous place as if he's looking within himself in order to provide something to God that, would, that he would offer for God to save him. That's, that's the truth of God's word. And it, and it strikes at us because that's the only person who's justified. But, but here's the question. But what about his? But the tax collector has no righteousness of his own. Well, he's imputed righteousness. Now that's not in that text but substitution is and so when the Pharisee says the mercy of God he doesn't know how all of this works that'll come in time when Christ goes to the cross and resurrects from the dead but the point is is that whatever God does God you do it only what you can do can make me right and here's what God does not only does he justify in declaring us forgiven but the way he justifies is he gives us a righteousness that is not our own All the man's hope was in God, the God who created the sacrificial system, the God who made, who, the, the God who shows mercy, and the gospel assures us that the God who atones for sin and justifies the sinner because of Christ imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, what imputed righteousness means is that justification is not just a past declaration, you're forgiven, it's a present reality. I, If you're a Christian, you are righteous, and you're not righteous because of anything you have. You're righteous because you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the last thing about justification is this, this is all received by faith alone, all of it is received by faith alone. Uh, you, you've got to get this. The, the, the religious people are mad. Justification makes religious people mad. <laughs> the tax collector left justified, listen to this, without performing a single act of obedience. Now just, just, just saturate in that for a second. That Pharisee had a list and Jesus says this man who has no list only cries out for mercy he's justified by faith alone by faith alone You hear me? He did not pray. That man didn't pray, "Be merciful to me a trying sinner." <laughs> he didn't say, "You know, pray uh, uh, be merciful to me a reformed sinner, reforming myself." He didn't say, "Be merciful to me a cleaning up my acts sinner." A try-harder sinner, a baptized sinner, a repentant sinner. He said, be merciful to me, a sinner. I got nothing. I got nothing. None of us have anything except the cling, except clinging to the cross of Christ. Even our faith is a gift. We can't, even, we can't even look at our faith and say, wow, look at the power of my belief. <laughs> we can't. It's all grace. You say, well, pastor, how is any of this possible? Romans 3, read it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You could put that verse as a banner over Jesus's, or as a footnote to Jesus's parable here. We are justified. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, based on the word of God and the very word of Jesus himself. So Jesus gives us a final conclusion that's divine. For everyone who exalts himself, another way of saying, for everyone who tries to justify himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Church, If God had not justified me based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, I would most certainly go to hell. There is no goodness, no morality, no religious work that can ever make any human being acceptable before God or remove the guilt of sin. Our prayers have sin in it. This sermon has my sinfulness in it. We are saved completely by the mercy of God. Our only plea is God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the good news of the gospel is God grants mercy to all who look to Christ and not for themselves. So here's the question for you this morning Will you be justified today? Will you? Are you right with God? Will you go to heaven justified by looking to Christ alone for salvation? Or will you go to hell condemned looking to yourself for righteousness and salvation? You can go to heaven today. You can have life today. All you have to do is cry out to God for mercy and believe that you can do nothing to save yourself, but Christ has done it all. And Christian Let us all repent of our attitudes of self-righteousness, self-pity, and superiority that are so often contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's stand. Sinners justified. Father, we bow our heads and we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of justification. And God, if there be one here that has never been saved, oh, may they see the great hope of this passage that anyone can be forgiven, anyone can be justified by your mercy and mercy alone. Help us, God, to be broken over our sinfulness and to see that we have nothing to boast in and nothing to cling to except Christ. May this be a time to respond. Perhaps those that just need to come to the altar and just thank you for your salvation, for those that may be here and may need to cry out for your mercy, that today they'll do that. And if they need to come and speak to me or someone else, that they would do that even as we sing and praise your name. Thank you, Father, for all you've done for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.